We're finishing the first season of Sons of Anarchy today. Jax knows Clay and Tig tried to kill Opie and killed Donna by mistake. They still have to deal with the real witness to keep Opie and Bobby from, you know, murder convictions. And we have to bury Donna while Gemma realizes her secrets aren't buried as deep as Clay thinks. Hi, and welcome to Belated Binge Sons of Anarchy. The Rebinge Podcast that doesn't take itself or the show too seriously. My name's Zach. I'm your host, revisiting some of the most iconic series in recent memory that I nearly missed out on, like Sons of Anarchy, which got popular when I was in college, and I didn't watch until like six years after I graduated. And today we are wrapping up season one of the finale. Season one with the finale? That's probably the more correct way to say that. It's episode 13, The Revelator. The Belated Binge Podcast. Before we get to it, there will be spoilers, obviously. There will also be adult language and situations. Go ahead and earmuff those children. Shout out to Katie holding it down for the bonus binge squad on Patreon. Patreon.com slash belated binge for those benefits. As usual, with Sons of Anarchy, we are going to try to kick this thing off by introducing the episode or the concept of the episode or however you want to, the message, the takeaway, the plot, however you want to look at these, whatever, they're supposed to be as if they were a rom-com. Nothing hurts worse than losing the one you love. Whether they're threatening to move halfway back across the country or they start making out with their high school sweetheart right in front of you. Or the worst happens and their life is cut short in a drive-by. You never know when the end could be right around the corner. So don't hesitate to show them you love them. Grab them and kiss them like you'll never let them go. Unless you're at a funeral, maybe wait till, you know, after the funeral. Okay, let's jump into season one finale, episode 13, The Revelator, which opens on a white bird. Can't really explain that. And Jax is taking a ride, which starts to make more sense. It's a really great riding shot, too, by the way. If I can find one, there's you're seeing a clip. Uh, he walks into Opie's house, where there appears to be a family wake type of thing happening for Donna, which makes sense. She was just murdered, you know, bullets to the back of the head, brains all over the dashboard because of Tig. Just saying. And Jax gives Opie's mom, Mary, a, a big hug, which is nice to see. Since last time they saw each other, she was very, very cold, like winters in Antarctica, I imagine. I've never been there, but I, I figure that's cold. Uh, Jax finds Opie outside watching his kids. They're on the swings. They're not really swinging, of course. They're not swinging because they're trying to process the fact that their mom's never coming home. It's fucking heartbreaking. Uh, and Opie is sitting on one of their little kid chairs, which is truly levity that this situation really needs, particularly because he's a giant. Uh, from what I understand, he's like six foot six. Uh, he's also, as you can see on the screen, a very stout human being, but he's also very, like, he's tall and big. He's He's a lineman. Essentially, he actually plays a linebacker in Remember the Titans when he's much younger and clean-shaven. Gary Bertier, up until Sons of Anarchy existed, or I found it, Ryan Hurst was Gary Bertier to me. I didn't know his actual name, but I knew Gary Bertier, but now he's Opie Winston, and that's never going to change for the rest of my life, I believe. I think I've said that story on this podcast before, but hey, you might be new, or you might just not memorize everything that comes out of my mouth that you listen to while you do other stuff in your life, because that's how podcasts work. Anyways, I needed to go on a little bit of a rant and a little bit of a side tangent and and really think about Opie in that teeny tiny little chair, just teeny teeny tiny, um, because the rest of this pretty much rips your heart out of your chest. And he stands up in this chair, doesn't even reach his knees, and they have 
They have a decent little talk between he and Jax without really having much to say, but they say enough. They we we get it, they're guys and broody and they're not good with feelings, but like they know that the feelings are there and all of that. But then you realize that Opie fully believes the lie. He is fully on board and has, you know, uh, succumbed to the Niners came to town and shot my wife thinking that it was me. He does not at this point at all suspect friendly fire. But Gemma does. And the moment that she sees Clay in the next scene, obviously we've moved scenes here, uh, but it's the same it, it seems like it should be happening parallel in the timeline. Um, she knows everything that's happened because she's Gemma, and Gemma knows everything. She's super Gemma. And and Clay actually gets emotional. Like, we see the tears, and he's feeling the weight of the mistake that he made. Tig pulled the trigger, but it was Clay's call. He put the plan in motion twice and insisted that it happen. And 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 you're not used to seeing Clay vulnerable like this, um, and you're also you're also given a really solid look, I think, at Gemma's character because she's supportive to him at home in this moment, but then she also tells him to put his big boy pants on when he walks out the door, because the club means more to her than he does. She obviously loves him and is supportive, you know, like I said, but they need a leader, she says, and you need to be that leader, even though this is your fault and all of that. But she doesn't give him any shit about it. You, you get a lot. You get a lot in a, in a very little uh, scene of starting to really understand Gemma a little bit uh, beyond what we've seen so far where she's just kind of been the the female version of Dom Toretto family on this show. Uh, we're at the police station now. Uh, we've got Unser, and he's putting Hale onto the stolen SUV, the SUV that Tig stole, um, as they, you know, do their investigation into the murder. And Hale's, you know, pissed, but he's um, he started to... He's at least started to put things together a little bit. How Unser's had to work with the club all these years. Um, he also takes ownership of his role in Donna's death, but he's still, like, with all of this, like, he still really, really wants to bring down Sam Crow, but he wants it different now. Um, and Unser is, like, Unser is seething. He doesn't want to do anything to help Hale. Um, because I think he blames Hale in a lot of ways for this too, for the way that Hale was kind of in in coats, uh, in in league, uh, in in <clears throat> in pants with Stahl. And yet he does kind of catch himself, and he offers up a worthwhile suggestion: outlaw justice. Because as uh, as Unser puts it very astutely. It's really hard to believe that Jax would have been privy and greenlit a scenario like this that would hurt Opie. And he's not wrong. And credits. Jax comes home to a crying baby and an overwhelmed Wendy, who's apparently trying the cry it out method. And apparently, Abel just needs his dad. And that's a moment that I can tell you is a few and far between and a very welcome one when you get to feel it. Most of the time, <laughs> the baby wants mom <laughs> and daddy's not going to cut it. But sometimes they just want dad and you get that warm and fuzzy in your chest. And again, we need those warm and fuzzies in our chest because Donna's brains were just blown out in the last episode. So we need some feel good right now. Um, and Wendy tries to bring up the night before, you know, the sex that they had, because that's what Jax does when he's sad. He just 
he just takes his sad little self and just rams it right into another human being somewhere. And it really threw a wrench in kind of everything for everybody. Thinking with the wrong head there, Jax, because now Wendy's like fawning over the dream of this like little family. Jax isn't having that. She's basically begging him and he doesn't shut her down because he obviously doesn't want her to relapse either, but he probably should have shut her down because it's not, none of this is healthy, none of this is helping, none of this is good, and obviously, Jax wants to be with Tara, so like, all of this whole love triangle Jax putting himself in situations is just, it's not the warm and fuzzies <laughs> uh, at all. Uh, Unser was, um you know, talking about his rock and hard place. And Jax is navigating his own rock and a hard place at this very moment. But this, he kind of created this a little bit, just a tad. I do feel for him in this moment trying to navigate it. But, you know. Oops. So now the club is at the table. Clay wants a good club turnout at Donna's funeral. And he gives this speech about taking responsibility. Which, of course, he's still playing the Miner's Niner story. But I think in his own twisted Clay way, this is somewhat genuine. Um, he does feel the responsibility. He's just obviously not going to tell the truth as to why. And Piney, Piney is on fire. He wants to kill Leroy and any other Niner that he can get his hands on, and Clay's trying to pump the brakes on this until after the funeral, which is code for Clay's trying to pump the brakes until he can figure out a way to avoid a war with the street gang that's his biggest gun customer based on his own lie. <laughs> to which I would ask, even if Tig killed Opie as intended, wouldn't this still be the reaction? Wouldn't the entire club still want payback? Wouldn't war still be the inevitable as a result of this lie? Whether it's Donna or Opie that they're going to be putting into the ground later, this is what the club was going to do. This is how they were going to feel. What was his plan for this blowback, even if it went the way it was supposed to? Sure, the Niners did show their, like, disapproval during the gun deal with the Mayans. They were supposed to do what they did. They were just supposed to wait until Sam Crow was gone. They showed up a little bit early. That was them rebelling. But that wasn't going to result in the kind of club force that should be coming if they actually killed Opie. Right? Or am I just way off base here? Because I'm thinking this was a bad plan. Bad plan, Clay. Bad plan. Whether it... Not just because it didn't work out and not just because it was ill-founded and not just because it was all rooted in lies, but, like, even if it went perfectly, this wasn't going to go good. So, anyways, Half Sack is still here. In case you were wondering. Uh, Jax tries to talk Piney down and sends Halfsack on a babysitting mission when it doesn't really work, uh, and then he heads to the hospital to talk to Tara. And let me tell you something. I hate this scene so much. I loathe it. With passion, deep, deep inside my soul. Tara is struggling with the whole getting away with capital murder, and tries to break it off and move back to Chicago. And I'm here for the Jackson-Tara relationship. Let me just say that now. But this whole scene is just maximum cringe for me. The running speech, the how many women Jax has been with, and when he's inside of them, he only sees one face, and all of that. It's this like gross depiction of the love he's trying to claim that he has for her, but it's not executed very well. And he's giving this like whole 
testing her loyalty and saying he would wanted her to, you know, wanted to do this relationship thing better this time. This dude just literally just pulled himself out of his ex-wife last night and led her to believe that they might still have a future together if she stays sober this morning. Whose loyalty's really in question here? <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a dramatic scene. It's intended to be, and, you know, this is a drama series. We need this. It was even acted well. It's just so cringy, really cringy dialogue. If you would have just, like, dropped Michael Scott and Dwight in as background characters to this somehow, it wouldn't have felt out of place to me. This is the cringiest cringe of the cringe. About as cringy as any time Gemma is on the screen talking to Wendy <laughs> and this time she's found like the burned up JT book that Jax has been reading and she goes spiraling into a panic because oh my gosh my son has found something written by his real dad she doesn't know what was written but she knows that there's secrets that are worth staying secrets in her book and Things were happening when he was writing the book. So, yeah, she's not real happy about this. She's not happy at all. No. Uh, Jax makes it back in time for an update from the lawyer. You know, the lawyer that said Opie must have flipped and all that. The expectation is that the witness's identity is going to be released and Opie is going to be immediately arrested for murder today wouldn't even get to bury his wife and the lawyer says he'll try to delay the process and annoys everyone especially Jax when he brings up you know getting paid because lawyers need paid for their time even if they're only in the scene for about 12 and a half seconds or so that's That'll be a thousand dollars. What did Clay say it was? Twelve hundred bucks an hour. So lawyers round up any time they show up. It's an hour. They could be a four-second conversation. They're gonna charge you an hour. So twelve hundred bucks. There you go. So now we're moving the party into the garage. And here's something that I like. It's a touch that they added, and they didn't explain it. They didn't do anything like outrageously like um. Uh, really showy but what they do do is that they kick a couple of dudes out of the garage so that they can talk business and they even give them nicknames even though they're literally extras but this is a subtle hint that these guys are hangarounds that either don't want to patch into the club or haven't been invited to like by a sponsor to prospect they're clearly biker dudes clearly biker mechanics but they're not club members and it's just a reminder that this club life is it's a small select group the one percenter stands for the one percent living outside the law which leaves 99 percent of us to just enjoy riding motorcycles and not dodging bullets and handcuffs every day uh, but we can't be around when they talk about illegal shit. Like how we're planning on killing the witness, which Juice is a little bit squeamish about, uh, and Tig is incredibly gung-ho about, because rats deserve to die. And this feels like Tig is rationalizing with himself somehow, that if he kills the witness and keeps Opie out of prison, it's somehow going to make it less bad that he just murdered Opie's wife when he thought that it was... Opie, that was a rat who deserved to die. Tig logic. Okay. Of course, this is about Bobby, too. Don't forget, Bobby actually is in jail right now. Um, and as, you know, Tig also reminds us that Opie made a mistake in the first place, so he's clearly not that remorseful about Opie. He can still throw shade his way, no problem, uh, and this is the part where I ask how the hell Tig knows in the first place about the mistake. All we saw when 
Opie, Bobby, and Jax came back from that Hefner hit was Bobby nod at Clay that the kill was done. It hasn't come up with the club that Opie froze and Bobby actually pulled that trigger. So I guess we're just chalking that up to like stuff that takes place off the screen. Sure. Uh, but this is not the first time that Tig has just jumped to some plot splaining about some part of plot that he actually shouldn't know. <laughs> um, but we're going to check with our dirty cop Trammel and call in the big guns for a murder. Happy. Remember Happy? The guy we should have called for the hit on Hefner in the first damn place and not be in this position at all because Happy's a hitman and he was in town in a room with you right before you decided to do this hit that didn't go well. Maybe use the hitman is all I'm saying. And Half Sack calls Jax in a just complete panic. Piney's in Oakland. He found a Niner hangout, and Jackson Chibs are on the way. Clay and Tig are off to find their dirty cop. So, this is great. So, Piney catches Half Sack following him, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna do the thing that I don't usually do on these. I don't like putting too many quotes in these recaps that I do for you because before I know it, I'm just gonna be reciting lines from the episode that you already watched. And that's not what I want this show to be. But this scene is everything I want this television show to be. Because I love it. Piney is amazing in this. So, this is the biggest gem. First, Piney tells Halfsack to work on his stealth skills. Because he did everything but wave at him when he was following him. And Halfsack responds with actually, uh, he, he did wave. Because he was getting a little lost and wanted him to slow down. Which is fucking hilarious. Uh, and Piney isn't waiting for backup. He's going in right now. And we've got the bartender behind the bar who... Clearly, the, these two people could not be more aesthetically different from each other, right? Just old crotchety white guy with, you know, oxygen tank in his nose, a young African-American woman who's clearly saying, you don't belong here, old man, uh, and gives a really good assisted living home joke, and Piney, with the zinger, <laughs> I got all the assistance I need, and just points at Afsack, who gives... He does not do well with the humor in this scene. His the this one's cringy. He says, you know, sister, and she says cracker, and everybody's uncomfortable, including me. And this is coming from a guy who's one of his really good friends back in the day was a a very very uh, large uh, black guy who played um, professional basketball, not like NBA professional basketball, but he got paid to play basketball and, um, he was six foot seven. And when we went out to the bar together, I had to stand on a bar stool to look him in the eye. And that was real comfortable for you, boy. But we used to kind of joke, um, uh, we, we had some in, you know, jokes with each other and, uh, uh, he would, he he would often look at me and say something about like you uh, call me like his his crackatoo or something. So the the joke loses something when you weren't there. I'm gonna probably cut this out. Um, but then the scene gets great again. Uh, and and it's because he gets confronted by these Niners. Sorry, I'm a little thrown off because of going down memory lane. Those were good times. Uh, he's confronted by these Niners who um basically also are telling him you probably shouldn't be here and he responds in the way that outlaw gunslinger should respond he bashes one with an oxygen tank and sticks a gun to the back of the other one's head and this is where this is where piney it goes from being kind of like comedic to just complete badass because the guy says you're going to get yourself killed and Piney's response is, well, I'm ready for that. Are you? And it's chills. Absolute chills. 
And by the look on the dude's face, by the way, uh, the answer is no. This is this is the like West Coast, so he's probably not even a fan of Biggie. He's definitely not ready to die. But here we are. <laughs> he might today. Cut to Clay and Tig with the dirty cop Trammel getting the lowdown on the witness's safe house and he's not really a fan of this. He tries to say no. Clay lets him know that he's, you know, saving his own ass because if Opie and Bobby go down, the next shoe to drop is Rico and, you know, Rico brings down everyone, including Trammel. Um, so now they got to figure out a case number. But that should be super easy for outlaw bikers, right? Imagine a member of law enforcement might, you know, have a much harder time getting information such as a case number that his department might already be working on. But sure, put the outlaw bikers on it, I guess. Okay, so now we're back with Jax, who has successfully tracked down the bar that Piney and Half Sack are currently in. And he gets a pleasant-ish greeting from Leroy, the leader of the Niners gang. And we just kind of stroll into the bar and we find Piney with a gun to his new faces. Uh, new, sorry, new, fr- new, fa- new friendly, some friendly faces with guns in them, I guess, is what I'm trying to say in some way. And this is where Piney isn't cool anymore. Uh, He was a badass cowboy in the last scene, and in this one he just turns into old racist white guy. It's not a great look. I prefer the badass cowboy version of Piney, and that's how I'm going to just, you know, that's how I'm going to remember Piney, not the the racist guy. Uh, Jax is able to kind of ease Leroy a bit and ensure that they're going to walk out alive after all this, possibly. Um, I mean, we know that Jax, Jax is here. He's not going to die in the finale of season one. Well, I guess at the time you didn't know that. This could have been a one-season wonder. Who knows? Anyways, um, Jax wasn't ready for Leroy to ask him. Like, he was genuinely asking what the hell Piney was talking about when it came to Donna's murder. Jax read this in the moment as like, wait, you're, you really are asking me this. This feels off. And then Halfsack, credit to Halfsack. He plays it really cool under pressure, helping Jax get the gun away from Piney. He does kind of like, bang, and elbows him in the side and takes his gun, um, which is real patch material, I believe. They didn't ask me. I don't get a vote, but, you know. Give the guys patch. Uh, so now we're having to sit down with Leroy. It's just Jackson Piney because we don't need Chibs and Half Sack to be as close to it and have the same suspicions as Jax when we're done here. That wouldn't work for all the plot tension. If everybody's on the same beat, then that beat doesn't really go where it's supposed to go. And Leroy explains that they showed their displeasure already when it came to the Suns making that deal with the Mayans that Clay made, without telling anyone, um, by jumping into the gun deal early. But they weren't trying to kill Sam Crow. And Piney gets worked up, and he talks about Donna being killed, and again, more racist white guy stuff we're going to skip. And Leroy handles this as well as you can, I think, particularly given the situation and the slurs that Piney's, you know, flinging around. And... In the best way to make Jax believe him, I think. And I've got to use another quote to really, you know, uh, illustrate that. Because it's a really good one. He said, If my need to hurt Sam Crow took me to Charming, had me killing women, do you think we'd be sitting here talking? And Jax isn't the only one having the realization... That that's very true and accurate. Piney's catching it too. 
and you can see the thoughts of what really happened lock into place in both of their eyes at the same time. And I don't think it's an accident that our next scene is with Clay and Tig either. Um, they took Juice to um, with them to visit the dude whose daughter was assaulted way back in the Funtown episode. And he's not very happy to see them. Um, what's his name? I should have wrote it down. It'll come to me when I'm not thinking of it. Uh, but Tig is weirdly happy to see his, his, his horse? And that's... Nuh-uh. Nope. Nope. Tig's gone weird places in this season. I don't, I don't need to think of him with a horse. I don't. I don't, but I am. But I am. I can't not. It's seared into my brain. Just... Ugh, disgusting. Uh, luckily, the blackmail begins. Um, essentially, here's the message. Help Sam Crow or you're going to jail for murder and you know, chopping a guy's balls off. Uh, his, uh, apparently, his bumping elbows with judges and super important people is going to get us the case number that we need. You know, that the cop couldn't get, I guess. Um, so now Jax is at, um, well... Jax is, Jax is, um, Jax is at the police station, which is probably not where you'd expect him to go, but it does make sense. He believes Leroy, so now he's got to figure out who else could have possibly killed Donna. And Unser has nothing, and he doesn't even want to talk to him. Hale does, though. In a cell. A place they're both familiar with for different reasons, and Hale just lays it out for Jax. How Stahl set up Opie as a rat, how Stahl and her you know, ATF wired him, and how he believes that Clay found the bugs and thought Opie flipped. And Jax wasn't expecting it. Immediately, he thinks Hale's playing some kind of an angle. But like Leroy, Hale delivers his response in the perfect way to make it land and for Jax to believe it quote incoming we ended up on opposing teams we don't like each other that much but seeing an innocent woman gunned down two little kids with no mom man I feel like that falls on the wrong side of the fence for both of us and this mic drop hits jacks like a ton of fucking bricks and it gave me chills just reading it. It's also cold here. Uh, and that's that's about how much uh, that the, the burnt book that JT wrote weighs for Gemma, uh, who's apparently binging it all just in one day. See, see what I did? Binging in the, in the how the weight of the... Never mind. We've got dramatic music and a panic attack to see and hear. And witness, now we've got Stahl. Stahl goes to Bobby. And she confesses what she did to Opie and what happened to Donna. And it's hard to tell whether she's doing this to try to like somehow clear her own conscience. Or if this is another one of her plays. Uh, I do have a hard time believing that she just feels guilty. But maybe she thinks the weight of Donna's death is going to get Bobby to confess and try to clear Opie. Like, you know, he'll, t he'll fall on the sword so that Opie doesn't leave his kids at home with a dead mom and a you know, dad in prison. I don't know. Maybe that's her play. It's the only one that makes sense here if this isn't just a, a, a clearing of the conscience, which I don't know that she has at all. She's played brilliantly. Because uh, I... It's hard to believe that the conscience exists. And now she gets a, a little bit weird at the horse barn between Tig and Clay. Uh, Tig confesses that he choked the first time he tried to kill Opie after Opie, you know, saved his life. And that's why he didn't realize it was Donna when he pulled the trigger. He couldn't look at Opie or he'd freeze again. So he did it from behind and through the window and, you know, la-da-da. Although... Can I just point out one thing? 
I didn't bring it up in the episode when I was talking about Donna's actual death with Cousin Amy, um, because, you know, we were kind of in the weight of the death itself. But remember what I said earlier about Opie making the little kid chairs look really, really, really tiny because Opie is a really, 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 really big man? Donna's not a really, really, really big man. She's not a big woman. She was tiny. She came up to Opie's, like, chest at most. She looked so small in his arms. And she was driving a pickup truck. One that he would, like, it's a bench seat, right? And it's and it's old. It's not, it's not a big, like, jacked-up truck. The back window's not tinted. Like, it's just an old beater. He would have towered in this the cab of this truck he would have been so his silhouette would have been so defined and like prominent for Tig to see she would have been barely looking over the steering wheel how he didn't at all in the moment think maybe not Opie cause like Opie's big but whatever Clay gives him a weird hug and can souls him uh, about how hard it is to do the dirty work you know, the, the behind-the-back-of-the-club-killing-your-own-brother kind of dirty work. And this does make me wonder about Clay's history and Sam Crow. I'm not sure if we have this confirmed anywhere or if, like, a first nine show, if it were ever to exist, but it's not going to, so we should all stop getting our hopes up, even though it would be so cool if that would explore it. But I could see Clay being, like, the Tig of the first nine. Sergeant at Arms when JT was president and the one who did the killing and the dirty work. And I imagine Piney would have been like VP for a time, but I, I kind of wonder like how Clay became president when JT was killed. Would Clay have like moved over to VP and it been a logical outcome? Or would Clay have had to like jump Piney? In the pecking order, would there have been like a, like an officers meet? Like they both went in for it, and there was a vote, and Clay got the rest of the club to vote for him by, I don't know, doing some more of this dirty work stuff. Perhaps I don't know. Um, it it's interesting to me how that could have possibly gone, and why I would love more material. Um, to come about even if it was like just really well written fan fiction i'd i'd be down for that um anything that anything that felt authentic to this world i'm on board for um which is why i started writing my own sequel fan fiction back when and if you go on patreon uh, and become a bonus binge squad member you can get the first 6 chapters of that read for you by me Anyway, Oswald got the case number with a phone call, um, but the blackmail stays intact, and Juice has the info from Happy on how the witness would be protected, uh, says it's a three-man job, and Tig is just ready to be a Boy Scout. Uh, he wants it to be him, Happy, and Chips. Okay, good. We're going to go kill the witness. Uh, Jax has had kind of a tough day, and he's ready to rip the Band-Aid off. Gemma, like, tries to pry because she's Gemma, and he just tells her to have Clay find him at the table. Um, and Piney is responding slightly differently. He's drowning himself in booze. And Tara's here, too. Remember, she she exists. She's dealing with her love demons. Uh, and we've got Opie following Piney's lead, drinking his troubles away, and awkwardly staring at his cut, draped over a chair which is pretty ominous. Um, hopefully his kids are, like, at school napping or playing or doing something along those lines um, and have some supervision. I guess they're old enough that they can play by themselves without needing just, like, 100% eyeballs locked on them. At least I hope. Uh, and this, it's just a... But it is a weird place for a montage in these episodes. Usually they finish episodes. Sometimes they start episodes. But the montage in the middle of an episode just seems like a rarity. It just feels weird. Um, maybe I just don't remember there being a lot and I'm, like, 
going to be surprised more by them during this rewatch. Um, I'm obviously watching a lot closer this time around. Hopefully that doesn't become a bad thing because I love this show and I don't want this like painstakingly thorough rewatch and analysis of it to somehow ruin how much I love this show. By the way, this ramble is brought to you by a bunch of random Hulu commercials I felt the need to write into my notes. Uh, Gemma is frantic when Clay gets back. Freaked out. Jax knows about Donna. Freaked out he read a book written by his dad. Clay's not having any of this freaking out shit. He tries to play it off like everything's cool and Gemma's overreacting and she strikes a nerve when she suggests that she's not going through what happened to John with Jax. Which is such a giant bomb of a line to drop right here when you know you aren't paying it off for a really long time. And when this is over, Gemma thinks Clay's losing his grip. Like JT. And now cue the heart to heart. And this is a tough watch. Brother to brother, father to son, and Clay lies to Jax's face. He says he didn't go after Opie, Donna was not his mistake, and Jax doesn't believe him, and doesn't pretend to. And his next stop is going to be Tiggy Boy, who he knows pulled the trigger, and he finds Juice just tore up when he tells him that the witness to the murder is a 17-year-old girl. And now we've got action Jackson mode. Man on a mission. The hit squad gets past the cops and ATF all fine, but they're not ready to find out it's a young girl either. Chibs is not okay with this. They need a minute. They're gonna like, they're gonna talk. But let's not forget that Tig's on a mission to prove to himself he's still a cold-blooded killer, and he makes his weird amends for like blowing Donna's head off right now. Damn it. (laughs) And believe it or not, I'm actually trying to be impartial on this podcast and not let my personal feelings towards characters completely ruin my ability to talk about them. This is not a character slander podcast, although that does sound like a a fun, fun podcast to do. Um, We just, we need time for Jax to catch up to our boys, and so we're interrupted by a quick scene of Tara showing up at Jax's house while Gemma and Wendy are there with Abel. And just sits on the couch with Wendy. Awkward action. Jackson is riding, and the hit squad took off their masks, you know, to collect themselves and figure out how they're going to murder a child. And Tig, Tig's on it, and Jax shows up just in time, as you knew that he would. We don't kill women. And he delivers this line murderously. And he sticks the gun right to Tig's head. He's been waiting for this moment. But first he has to scare the shit out of a little girl and send her on her way. And now, fireworks. The tension that's been building the entire season long between Tig and Jax has just completely boiled over Jax, knowing that Tig tried to kill his best friend and got his wife by mistake, it is on. Punching, kicking, the whole nine. And then, and then we see it. The small flash of humanity that resides inside of Tig Traeger. He's lost the fight, but he turns around to Jax for one last moment and asks Jax to deliver the final blow. The punishment he knows he deserves. Tig logic. Truthfully, he deserved the bullet in the temple if you ask me, but you're starting to see Tig's heart. And it's not the last time. Piney has a copy of JT's book, though, apparently. And the old man is plotting his own Sons of Anarchy series that I'm sure we're all going to get to watch play out in some form or fashion uh, after Jax takes his turn at the bottle at the cemetery. 
and there's three women at his house in the most painfully awkward tension waiting on him to come home, and he ain't coming. Instead, he's waking up hungover, bruised, dirty asshole blanket on him, don't know where that came from. His blade is still intact, though, which is probably a good thing. Um, and flash over to Clay, who can't get his cufflinks in because, remember, arthritis, we have to remember that. Uh, Tara looks like a woman who's come to the realization of some sort. We're going to get that worked out. Uh, Opie seems to have made up his mind. He's slicked up and he's ready for the funeral. And he grabs his cut. And Jax gives the homeless lady back her blanket. Remember her? The homeless lady? The one that Gemma gave money to? Able to help my little boys? He lets her keep his hoodie, and I don't remember if we ever see that hoodie again or not, but we definitely see her. And she points him toward a water spigot, and this is when we start to get some iconic visuals from this finale, and where I start to not love this finale. We end the episode at Donna's funeral, which is a shit ton of club members riding in, and they escort the hearse to the cemetery, and... Jax is already in the cemetery, but he's late to the funeral, and he just comes walking up during the service. Tara spots him and puts his cut on him, and there's bloody vomit-tasting makeout session, I guess, that has to happen for reasons. Of course, we know that this is now Tara telling him that she's staying in Charming, with him. So much for cooling it around Wendy. And this is a much better way for her to realize she's lost out on her family dream. At a funeral. Way better than on a couch. Uh, and he strolls up. And he throws a glare at Clay. At Tig. At Gemma. And throws a flower on Donna. And walks away. We see Piney give him a look. Or you know a, a copy of his dad's book. Um, and a look that's like you know. We're in this together little dude. It's time. It's your time essentially. Um, this is kind of like Piney anointing Jax. And says it's time for a change. While Jax is standing at his dad's grave. And the episode ends with some screensaver-looking visuals of him staring at his dad's headstone while Clay and Gemma stare at him. And this is the finale that visually is, like, seeded into my brain. I'm pretty sure I got chills the first time I watched the ending to this. The final shot with him at his dad's grave with the look of destiny and determination to change the course of Sam Crow, Like... I've said this before, but when I tell you, like, I had a moment where I wanted to be this dude, I can't think of another character in TV that I've connected with harder than this guy in this, like, season. Especially as a, you know, grown-up. But. There's a big but here. But. <laughs> here's my issue with the finale. It's the funeral. Opie's supposed to be Jax's best friend. Remember? They've told us that, like every single episode of this season. When your best friend loses a family member, especially a spouse, that day, the funeral, that's about them. You just want to be there for them. Pay your respects, mourn the loss, because presumably, if you're best friends, you would have had a relationship with the person too, but most importantly, you're there for that best friend friend before during and after you are the shoulder if they need one the grab whatever they forgot because they're trying to process burying their wife and getting their kids together grabbing them food giving them a ride whatever they fucking need that's not what Jax does he shows up late no shower a t-shirt he interrupts the service, makes it about him, 
The moment with Tara at least happened a little bit away from the crowd, but, like, they could see it. And, like, it was a little better than making out on the casket, I guess. But, like, it was a spectacle that wasn't needed. And when he does get to the casket, he makes a show of it. He makes a show at Clay, at Tig, at Gemma. He makes his, like, dramatic gesture, and he walks away. Away. Leaves. Doesn't stay. He makes himself the center of attention, and he leaves. He wasn't there for 13 seconds. And he's gone. He didn't even look at Opie. I just I just wish he had been there for his boy the way that I like to think he would be. But he wasn't. His best pal that we've been told about all season long. Nope. Nope. You can still have this amazing iconic season finale ending at his dad's grave after He's been the best friend that he's been claiming to be the whole season. Otherwise, I really like this episode. Piney had some fantastic moments in between some not-so-fantastic ones. You get a nice, subtle character journey, like, for, for Tara and Opie. They both sort of very, in very, very small moments take long strides um in the way that Jax gets to go through these like unlikely conversations to come to the realization that the thing that he had a bad feeling about episodes ago was true and how he handles it with clay and like for tig and just goes for tig like i love almost everything about this finale i just wish that Jax was a better best friend and that's it. If you're still here, thank you. I think it's fantastic that you want to listen to me talk about this show that I love so much. So before we go, let's see if we can rewrite that show. <laughs> One small change to each episode at a time. For this episode, my question to you is, what if Hale doesn't talk to Jax at the police station? And for me, I kind of wonder, he may still get to the same inclination, but I sort of wonder if it's him as hard. And there's something about him and Hale and that relationship that's forming. I think it makes it land different. And I think it was really important. So I'm curious what you think. Um, so let me know. Uh, you can tell me uh, across social media at Belated Binge. You can jump into the Facebook group for listeners of this podcast. Uh, you can leave a voicemail on my website, belatedbinge.com. And there's links to everything that you need in the show notes of this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, re-binging Sons of Anarchy, give us a follow, leave a review. I would appreciate it greatly. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, life is short, buy the motorcycle, and when you do, wear a helmet. Dress for the slide, not the ride, and make sure you're taking belated binge Sons of Anarchy along for that ride.